All right. Go ahead and be seated. Now, on Sunday afternoons, I have had a long-standing practice that Sunday afternoon I take an epic nap. And you don't have to feel bad if you call my phone because I set it to I don't care if I, the world is burning down mode. I don't get any messages. I don't get any phone calls. It all just goes away silently. But you still might be impressed to know that I'm able to take an epic nap in the presence of my four children and two dogs that do a lot to disturb that nap. And I have found a method that works really well for me. And I didn't even know that I could sleep with noise canceling like earphones in my ears until I tried it one time. And it was like traveling to a different dimension. Like it, it, it's weird. If you've never done this and you have problems taking a nap and you need to take a nap, turn on a white noise app and put in noise canceling headphones. And this is the strange thing about the phenomenon for me. That there's something about the way that our brain is wired that by putting something so loud that I can't hear the dad, 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 dad going off. That I can't hear the dogs barking at the door. I mean, there's something so loud in my ears that I can't hear someone walk into my room and scream. Like it's that loud, but somehow my brain can shut that off and I can just sleep. It, it, it's one of these things like our brain, when it gets something really common in the background happening, it learns to ignore that. It happens with sights too. It's one of those things that when you're used to seeing your house and where you live, there's things that you'll just walk by and you know it's there, but you don't ever pay it any attention until maybe you're moving away from that house and you just stop and stare at the flowers at your front step. People also say that you can't smell your own home. It actually has a really interesting term tied to it. It's called nose blindness. They couldn't figure out, how, you know, we have deaf and we have blind, but what's the term for when you can't smell something? And so they just called it nose blindness. I, there's actually anosmia or whatever the term is for the, the long term. But when you're around and exposed to a smell for a long time, there's a term called nose blindness where you can no longer smell this. This is why teenage boys smell as bad as they do because they haven't learned to believe their loved ones yet that they need to wear deodorant and they can't even smell themselves. So they, they become immune to it. There's this truth that when you're around something for a long time, just even the smell of it becomes invisible to you. And I believe that that happens not just with the things that we see and the things that we hear and the things that, that we can smell, but also things of the heart. There's things, that, there's relationships that we begin to take for granted because their love has just always been so present. We don't recognize it for the blessing that it is. And we begin to make small things that should be held in high esteem. We're in a series called The Story. And the story is covering from the very beginning of Genesis and when God spoke time and matter into existence all the way to the end when all time and matter will cease and God will set up a new heaven and a new earth. We're, we're studying the whole story of life, but we're in the middle of the ministry of Jesus right now. And today we're gonna specifically focus into the Gospel of John chapter 11. If you wanna follow in, in your Bible, you'll be able to. But we're gonna be looking at the love of God and the love of Jesus in it's interesting because in John 11, they talk about Jesus and they talk 
about who he is. We get to hear the Jews talk about him a little bit and his reaction to his friend's death. And they say some things about Jesus that are generally positive, but here's, there, there's, there really, there's three things that I wanna focus in on that I believe it's an accurate description of Jesus, but it's too far minimized. It's seeing his love as something smaller than what it should be described. It's seeing his timing as something smaller than what it should be described. It's seeing his devotion to us as something smaller. And we need to see these things for what they are, that his love is endless and incredible and perfect. And so we're gonna look at some of this and we're gonna start in John eleven thirty six. 36, but to just give you some context before I get to that really simple passage, Jesus had been in Judea and when he had been teaching, he was questioned about who he was. And it's one of my, about how statements that he makes in his dialogues with the Pharisees, the religious rulers. He, he makes this statement about how Abraham looked forward to his day. And they're like, you're not old enough to be talking about Abraham. And he said, before Abraham was, I am. And he used the term for Yahweh, like in Exodus with Moses, that God used to identify himself to Moses. And he applied it to himself. And it was that statement of, I am the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. I am God in flesh, Emmanuel. He made that statement and they picked up rocks and they were ready to kill him for it. And so he left there. And so he, he's away from Judea. He's away from Jerusalem. And he gets this message that Mary and Martha's brother, he, he loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And he gets this message that Lazarus is sick. And to, to hurry back and to come and pray, or Lazarus is going to die. And in the description, in this passage, it's interesting because the, the author of the Gospel of John makes the statement, Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And it uses the term for love, agape. And, and there's different words for love in Greek, but agape is like a deep servant-hearted love. Like I, I would do anything, I, I will take care of you, I will serve you kind of love. And it frames Jesus' love that way of this depth and this servanthood. And as the passage continues on, Jesus waits two days he gets the, the notice, the person that he deeply loves, that he'd do anything for, that is dying. And he waits two days where he is. And then he tells his disciples, Lazarus has fallen asleep, but we're gonna go and wake him up. And his disciples are like, well, if he's sleeping and he's sick, then let him sleep, Jesus, he's gonna get better. It's like, no, you guys don't get it. Lazarus has died. But for your benefit, I'm glad that it happened that way so that your faith will be increased because I'm going to go and wake him up from death. And they're, they're freaked out because they had just almost gotten killed in Judea. And Thomas, who seems to be like the really reasonable one of, of the group, he says, well, let's go with him so that we too can die. A little sarcasm, but still willingness to go. And then they go together and they get there and Lazarus is dead. And as they're there, Jesus moves with compassion and, and he's weeping over Lazarus. And in John eleven thirty six, 36, it simply says this, the, the Jews said, see how he loved him. See how he loved him. And it's a very simple statement, but the, 
The word that they use for love here is phileo instead of agape. And this is just one of the many reasons that it's so important for you to become a student of scripture. Because as you know to look for different things in the passages and question, okay, what is the word that they use for love? Or what is the word that they use for service? Or what, what is the word that they use for this? It's gonna open up other pieces of scripture that it's so easy to miss in our English language. And so they use the word phileo, which is much more of a feeling emotional Love, it's like, do you, do, look how much Jesus feels for them. Yes, Jesus does just feel for him, but Jesus' love is so much more expansive than just for the emotional expression that he's demonstrating right now. And it's so easy to talk about the life and the ministry in the heart of Jesus and make light the way that he feels about things. And just even, I wanna reaffirm to you guys, we, we've heard in America, you get to hear about Jesus dying on the cross so frequently from the time that you're a little child. If you're raised up around the church, you've heard the story, Jesus died on the cross. You've heard the story that he paid the penalty for your sin. But I, I am afraid that it's become like white noise and we have lost the, the awe and the reverence and the respect for the fact that God himself came to us in flesh. And he suffered and he gave himself in your place and in my place to pay for your sin. And we say, oh, Jesus loves. Now listen, Jesus loves you in a way that he would suffer the most brutal death to pay the penalty for the sin that you owe. Jesus paid the ultimate price and we often say, oh, that's too big of an ask for me, me and my faith to go. It's too big of an ask for me to go pray for someone. It's too big of an ask for me to go and serve someone. It's too big of an ask for me to invest my life in the kingdom of God that way. And I think it gets easier for us to act that way towards God because in our mind, his love for us, it looks that way. And we make his love smaller in our eyes. And so our small response in love makes more sense. And we need to accurate see, accurately see the way and describe the way that Jesus loved us. His love for us was perfect. And don't make the mistake of minimizing the way that God has loved you. Don't minimize the way that Jesus has loved you. His love for us is absolutely perfect. That's the first thing that I'd say are underestimations of the way that Jesus was in this. And I wanna dive more deeply into his perfect love than I will the other points in my message because it's, it's important to have an accurate picture of this because John eleven thirty six, the Jews are saying, oh, how he loved because they're describing what happened in John eleven thirty five, which uh, I recently challenged some of our student leaders to memorize the Bible verse, but I had to be very clear and say, you can't memorize John eleven thirty five because it's only two words. And some of them were immediately like, darn it, that was my plan. Um, because John eleven thirty five, just the whole passage just says this, Jesus wept. If you're like, I don't have any scripture verses memorized, now you got one, Jesus wept. All right, it's in your arsenal now. And it, it's an interesting passage. And some theologians or some Christians have at times struggled to interpret this passage because it feels like, should Jesus have wept? Is that appropriate for the Messiah to have wept over someone that he was about to bring back from the grave? One, one of my friends tried to convince me of this about this passage. He tried to convince me, he said, the reason that Jesus wept in this passage was because he was so angry 
at all the people around and their lack of faith of knowing that he was going to raise Lazarus up. And I'm like, there is some anger in your heart if you feel like that was Jesus. Because quite honestly, no commentators or, or theologians historically agree with that perspective, first of all. But second of all, when you bring Romans 12 into the picture where, where it says, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, it is in line with the character of God to be concerned about what was being felt in that moment. And I want to reaffirm to you that the kind of affection that God has for his people, that when you are hurting, that when you are struggling, the way that Hebrews says it is we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us. This is, this is amazing about how perfect the love of God is in the way that it looks at you. When you're struggling, it doesn't say, just buck up and get it together. I mean, if any of us men in the room were put in Jesus's situation where he had to go to this quote unquote funeral that was happening with the intention of ruining the funeral, we, we would probably walk in and just like we speak to our children many of times, you don't have anything to cry about right now. Stop feeling what you're feeling. It's ridiculous. Get it together. Get a hold of yourself. He's not going to be dead in like five minutes. Just, just calm down and stop acting like big babies. Like I know that that's what many of us would just slide into this situation. But the expression of Jesus' love is demonstrated in perfect expression. I have felt the compulsion at a celebration of life of a, of a loved one to want to just bite down on my tongue and not allow a tear to escape from my eye. But I want to tell you, it is a healthy expression of the person you are to allow the full range of emotions to be displayed in your life. It is not healthy to be so disconnected to part of the brain and the psyche that God has placed into you that you hit the brakes as hard as you can on any aspect of your emotion. It is a healthy thing to experience and let joy be expressed through you. It is a healthy thing to grieve over the loss of a loved one or the loss of a relationship or the loss of an opportunity or a transition in life. It is healthy to allow that expression to occur. But we have painted a picture, especially upon the men that say you should not have expression within your life. And Jesus portrays with perfection that we should allow that to be felt. The other side of the coin is that we should not allow expression to derail the actions that we should be able to take. We should not be a slave to the way that our heart and our emotions drag us to go. And there is a middle balanced point on healthy expression and that's what we should strive for. But complete absence of expression or com being completely controlled by the emotional whims are unhealthy. And so first of all, when we're describing the perfect love that Jesus has, First of all, Jesus' love was perfect in its expression. Second, his love was perfect in compassion. The people that were there, they didn't have the faith to see what Jesus was going to do. He could have approached the situation and just be like, 
you bunch of heathens. Y'all just don't get it, do you? You hard-headed nincompoops. But he felt compassion on them. So many of his interactions where he could have brought just judgment on people, he demonstrated both compassion, both grace and truth. And in the way that he interacted in this situation, it wasn't just hurry up and get the rock out of the way. We have a person to rise up from the grave. Go ahead and tear down the funeral stuff. Stop the weeping and the wailing. Let's just get it. No, he felt what they felt. He went with them where they were. And then he did what he needed to do. His love is perfect in compassion. And the third thing that made Jesus' love perfect is that it was perfect in holiness. He didn't get consumed by the emotion of the moment, but he continued to know what he came there to do. He continued to move towards accomplishing his purpose. In a time where it'd be easy to get kind of overwhelmed by what everyone was, was feeling and even overwhelmed by some of the things that were said because there were statements that were made that were just bordering on criticism. You know what I mean by that? Like you've had people say things to you and it wasn't like outright criticism, but it was almost like a backhanded compliment or like a backhanded statement where someone says something to you and it's, it's nice, but it's, it's, it's like, as they said to him in the passage, if only you had been here sooner. If only you would have been on time. If only you would have started to make your way here when you got the message instead of two days later. Couldn't the one who healed the sick have done something to keep this man from dying? Couldn't you have done more, Jesus? It's too bad. You weren't on time. It's too bad. You wouldn't use your power the way that you should for your loved ones. It's easy to get derailed when you come to serve someone and then they say something critical of you or the people you love or organizations that you find yourself tied to. When someone says something that you don't like, it's so much easier for us to be like, well, I was going to help, but it's getting late in the day and I'm going to go help someone who's not a jerk. One of the ways that Jesus' love is perfect in holiness is that he would serve people who don't deserve it. And we very quickly can determine the people who deserve help and the people who don't deserve help in our culture. But let me bring you in on a, on a, on a little secret about those two circles. Only one of those circles exists. And it's people who don't deserve help. Guess which circle you and I are in? the ones who don't deserve help. But our debt to grace is well-defined in Jesus' parable when he says, you're like a servant of a master who owed the master a great sum and was forgiven a great sum and then went and grabbed a hold of a coworker who owed you a small sum and demanded repayment. Listen, we are such debtors to grace, we can't help but show compassion to other people because of the compassion that we've been shown. And holy love is one that understands that we are all under the same debt. And there might be people who aren't ready to receive help, but we as followers of Christ should be ready to give help to people who don't deserve it. Because that's what a holy kind of love is.
So Jesus is there, and then some of these statements begin um, to come out. Like in verse 37, it said, but for some, but some of them said, it's always some of them. Some of them always like to tell you that it's some of them as well. Like I'm speaking for the unnamed masses. Some of us have decided. Some of us feel this way. Some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. This is an interesting thing about the tomb of Lazarus. Uh, they, they do different kinds of, of tombs. They, they found one that was a cave. They rolled a stone in front of it. But when they put uh, someone in the grave, this was a culturally believed thing. This is not a biblically taught belief. So I want to make sure you understand. There are, there are things that people of the time believed about the way the world worked that were not taught as truths in scripture. This is one of them, that in this time, they believed that when someone died, that their spirit would be present in the area for three days and that there was some hope, some hope that they might return to their body before they went to their eternal destination. But after the fourth day, that was it. And so when someone died, they would have three days of weeping and then seven days of mourning after that, once the death was considered unable to be changed. And so Jesus arriving on the fourth day, it was, they'd already had their three days of weeping and now they just, there's no hope for a miracle. And that's one of, one of the other interesting things about this passage is that hope was out of reach in this moment now. If Jesus had not waited those two days, then it would have been like healing a sick person. They, he wasn't considered all the way dead yet, even though he was laid in the tomb. And so for all of them there, the, this moment was over, but Jesus it get, receives this questioning and then he's deeply moved and he begins to move towards the tomb. And th this is the second thing that I think it's, we underestimate with God and it's a difficult thing with us, but his timing is perfect. They questioned his timing because he just missed the window where he could have done something by a day. Their understanding of the limitation of what Jesus could do was like after three full days in the grave, that's it, there's no more hope. And he just missed the window of timing. But Jesus was setting up a miracle that would break their understanding of what God could do and would do. And so often in our situations, we look at something that has happened and we prayed about and God didn't do it on our timing. And we just say, it's just a no. And I'm not opposed to God answering no, but I wanna wake you up to the fact that sometimes we think a situation is over and God is not done with that dream yet. He's not done with that prayer yet, but your perspective of when God could answer that prayer is different from the heavenly perspective. The people on earth had, had given up on Lazarus. There was no more hope, but God was setting up a situation to teach them something that they couldn't see. Their life was part of a greater story than just what they could imagine. And God's timing is perfect. And for us, it doesn't always feel perfect because we can't see what he's gonna do at the end of the story. And so they looked at this and they said, oh God, God, you missed an opportunity. Jesus, you missed the opportunity. If only you, could, you had been here sooner. And this is just one of the other kind of footnotes I'd put on this story. We all have a sense that we're the main character. We all have a sense that the whole world is here designed to serve our needs 
and give us the sunshiny day and to give us the comfort. And I wanna reaffirm to you, Jesus is the main character of the story. Our life is supposed to glorify him. Lazarus's life is supposed to glorify him. Even in Lazarus's death before this resurrection that's about to happen, his life is designed to glorify him. And if you continue to live your life thinking the utmost point of the universe and the existence of God in the universe is to add to your comfort, to your prestige, to your ego, you are going to be sorely disappointed because God is not going to position you just to glorify yourself, but he will work in your life to glorify himself through you. And sometimes that will be through difficulty and suffering, even eventually death in our lives. Our life should glorify our heavenly father. And there was a difficult road that was set for Lazarus and his family because this was not an, uh, an enjoyable exercise to go through. Don't miss that. You know the resurrection at the end. They didn't know that. Their hearts didn't know that. This was a difficult thing for them to walk through. And even in what Jesus was going to do, it really brought their faith and their life experience into conflict because as Jesus approaches the grave and in verse 39, he says, take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, this was the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor for he has been there for four days. I wanna pause there for a minute. This is the intersection of reality and faith. They were praying, Jesus, would you just do something? Send a messenger, get him here, he can do something. Jesus, work a miracle, do something in the situation. But when he gets here and he begins to do something, it's like, hold on. It's been four days, it's, it's too late for you to do something in this. If we open up this can of worms, there is going to be a smell. Some of the older translations say, he stinketh. It's a great way to say it. If we open this up, if we open up the opportunity for a miracle, there could be a mess that is associated with it. It's a beautiful tension in that moment. So many people that are like, I want my marriage to get better but if we go to marriage counseling and we open up that can of worms, there could be an odor. If I tell someone about the addiction, about the gambling problem, about the abuse of medicine, there's, there could be an odor. Well, there could also be a miracle. And you'll find yourself at an intersection where you have a decision to make of risking the mess for the miracle, risking embarrassment so that you can experience healing. And there'll be a choice that has to be made. And so she makes the objection and Jesus reminds her of what he had already told her before in verse 40. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? And verse 40, man, I hate that there's a gap in between 40 and 41 in this passage. He says, and so they took the stone away. I have questions that as I imagine and picture this as I read it, that I need answered. Like who was the fool who put their hand to the stone first? Who is the one that Jesus said, 
roll the stone back and someone went over and started pushing. Like who, what, I, I have to default to say it was probably Peter because he was always willing to do the dumb thing first. It's like in the middle of the storm, he's like the one, Jesus, can I walk on the water to you? Or when Jesus asks, who do you guys say I am? He's like, you're the Messiah, the, the Savior, the Son of God. Or when Jesus says something that Peter doesn't like later in the section, he's like, begins to rebuke Jesus and try to correct Jesus. Like Peter was willing to step in it. Maybe it was Peter. Maybe after Martha gave her objection and Jesus said, didn't I tell you you'd see the glory of God? She went over and she started pushing on the stone by herself. And the men had to be like, oh, she's listening to Jesus and we're not. We better catch up and went over and helped her because it would be a multi-person effort. But I wonder who was the first one. And I wonder if I was in the crowd that day because there was a crowd there. It said, that people, Bethany is not far from Jerusalem and people had come from Jerusalem to mourn Lazarus's death. And so there was a crowd of people watching, a crowd of people listening. And I wonder that when Jesus gives an instruction, who from the crowd are willing to just get up and begin to move? And who is just too committed to the run of the mill exercises of saying, this is just how we live our life. We don't step out. We don't do things. We don't take risks. We don't take risks of creating odors in our life. We just stick with the status quo. And I wonder who you'd be in that circumstance. Have you developed the kind of faith that it's like, if I hear Jesus say, go, I'm going to go. If I hear Jesus say, do, I'm going to do. Even if it doesn't make sense, even if it risks embarrassment, even if it causes difficulty. There's at least enough to, to begin to move the stone. And there must have been a beautiful little bit of attention right here. And so they took the stone away. Then Jesus looked up and Pay attention to this prayer that Jesus prays. He, he speaks to the Father. Father, I thank you, verse 41. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of those people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. This is a neat verse because Jesus is unchanged by the miracle that's about to happen even before it happens. Jesus' faith was so rock solid there's no question of if Lazarus is about to walk out of this grave. But he said, but this is going to help some people here. It's an amazing position to get to in your faith where you just trust that God's going to do what he has put on your heart that he says he's going to do through you. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that, you may, that they may believe that you sent me. Verse 43, when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice. So there's a tone change. He's praying to God, and then he speaks in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. What a weird moment of silence that probably existed between Lazarus, come out, and then hearing the shuffling of feet in a grave. I love awkward silence. And I would have loved to have been there for that little moment. That would have been like gold. <laughs> Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. Everyone's like beginning to smell the smell coming out of the grave. Like, who is this crazy person? And then they hear a footstep. All the things that probably began to read, run through people's head of like, how did this happen? Like, he, he's been in there four days. Like he would have died from like, he, he didn't have food. He didn't have water. He was sick. Like there's no way that we put him in there alive. But like, how did this happen? This is incredible. This is mind breaking. 
And I still will hold to the fact, and I'll tell you, this isn't in the passage, so this is my opinion, so I'm stating this is my opinion. I'm going to hold to the fact that he still smelled like the grave when he came out of there. God put life in him, but as he comes out, Jesus gives the instruction, take him out of the grave clothes. Because I believe this miracle came with a little bit of mess on it as well. I believe that there was still some smell that associated what happened here. And I could be wrong. Maybe it all smelled like roses and that's part of the miracle. I don't know. But I, I believe that their fear was warranted and it was present and it was in the air. But it couldn't stop what God wanted to do. And I believe so often when we need God to work in something, we need to be ready for there to be some mess in it. But this is, this is one of the other things. And band, if you guys want to come up, I'm going to begin to wrap this up. We look at that and we're like, oh, that would be incredible to see. Not for the awkward silence Paul, stuff that Paul enjoys, but just for the, the dead to life. That would be incredible to see. I hold to the fact that bringing life back into a dead man is a smaller miracle than the act of God turning your soul into a new creation at that moment where you place your faith and your trust in him. It is a greater miracle that he instills eternal life and new life into one of our hearts at the moment of belief than bringing life back into a body. It's an easy thing for him to give life back into someone who's died, but for him to cause you to be a new life, to have your slate wiped clean, for your sins to be forgiven, it required Jesus suffering, his hands and feet being nailed to a cross, his blood being spilt. It was much higher cost that was paid so that you could have new life. And we make small of it because we're so used to hearing and seeing emblems of the cross and the concept of the cross. And so our love for God has grown smaller and smaller and weaker because we, we see the cross as a small thing, but we see a dead person rising as a big thing and we have it twisted. The cross is so much more significant. And we look at our messes and we just say, oh, this is too big of a mess. I can't ask for God's help. I can't ask for his forgiveness because this mess is so big and it's because we've made the cross look so small and we've made miracles look bigger than what they actually are. I'm gonna compare it to this. Um, I enjoy sharing about my dad fails and this was absolutely falls on the shoulder of a dad fail. Uh, my wife was not at home at the time that it happened, which greatly made it more painful for me to have to deal with on my own. But back when my kids were young, one of them um, was in an exorcisor. And I don't know if you've ever had your kid in an exorcisor, but when, I can show a picture of what an exorcisor is in case you guys aren't familiar. These things are great because when your kids are young and you have to hold them all the time, it's so hard to do anything. Like just even putting on deodorant or reading a book or cooking a meal, like it's impossible. But when they can stand up and just use their hands and play with something and bounce a little bit, it is like liberating as a young parent. And you will put them in there as long as they are happy because they're getting exercise, they're safe. And you can, you can do things like just read a book, like it's freeing. And I'm doing this and I'm going around the house, cleaning up the kitchen, sitting on the couch, reading a book, whatever, moving around. And I don't hear anything weird from the exorcisor. And I don't see anything weird from the exorcisor. 
but I begin to smell something weird from the extra saucer. And this little child who is in a, in a diaper had so significantly filled the diaper that stuff with each joyful bounce that was happening. And like the bottom of that, you notice like there's some little drain holes which really aren't great, but it was like a bowl. Little toes like just enjoying playing with the textures. This is what parenting is like. If you haven't appreciated your parents lately. And I was willing to throw away the extra saucer. I was willing to throw away the outfit. I was definitely throwing away the diaper. It's not like I was gonna get rid of my child. I might set her in the backyard for a little while, spray with a hose. Now, get her cleaned up. But there's never a question of how big the mess was. As a father, you'll do whatever you need to for the child. It's not about the mess. And if you have created a mess in your life, I wanna reaffirm to you, your heavenly father is not done with you. And he can work a miracle in your situation, but you're gonna have to be willing to deal with a little bit of a mess. It's interesting that I think as the stench came out of the grave, Jesus probably could perceive a spiritual stench that was already present, a spiritual stench that smelled like death amongst those religious people who were all about the actions but keeping their heart and their mind far away from God. And the resurrection that happened with Lazarus was of far less importance for the people who actually decided, actually believed, actually gave their heart and mind to God that day. That was the resurrection that really mattered in that moment, the people who placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the beginning of fixing a mess in your life. That is the miracle that I am most concerned with. And my encouragement to you today is God is not done with you. But if you wanna to begin to clean up the mess that has happened in your life, it starts with your heart, it starts with your mind. It starts with the decision at this intersection of saying, I can pretend like everything's okay and keep going, or can I, I can actually open up the mess, open up the smell, and open up the miracle in my life. Let's pray together. Jesus, we are thankful for the way that you love, for the way that you brought Lazarus back, for the way that you restored a brother to Mary and Martha, the way that you showed yourself powerful in your timing and in your devotion and in your love through John 11. But for us right now, if our life has looked like spiritual death, we confess that you are Lord. We repent of the decisions that we've been making that are destructive. And we once again ask you to be that authority in our life, to make us a new creation, to remove our sins as far as the east is from the west. And you have said those who put their faith in you will never be put to shame. You call us dearly loved, adopted children into your family. And would by your spirit, you just reaffirm in our hearts and minds today that you are present and that you are here. And that as your voice called out to Lazarus and he responded, when we hear your calling, when we hear your direction, we will respond with obedience in that moment because we believe, we trust you, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with us as we worship?